right, guys and gals, welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Jacob Bynum with you here today. David is sleeping, so he's not with us on the podcast today. Um, like I said, you know, normally our podcasts have to do with shooting. This will be the third one that we've done that is not shooting related. I have been extremely excited about doing this podcast. I have a special guest with us, Will Jimeno. Uh, he was he was at Ground Zero or under Ground Zero, as you'd say, at, at uh, 9-11 uh, back in 2001. And I spoke with him on the phone before about doing this podcast and he has graciously agreed to spend some time with us and and give us a story uh welcome to the show will hey thanks for having me jake appreciate being here man thank you for being here i've been so excited about this i put out some stuff on our on our podcast before that you were going to be on here i got comments uh coming in on the on the dedicated email the uh, roap at riflesonly.com and uh man i just i i am just delighted that you're here and i'm glad that you're going to spend some time with us but first of all uh, where are you from where are you from originally well uh originally i'm from columbia south america i was born there but i came over when i was two years old to new jersey and settled in hackensack new jersey in um in 1970 with my parents. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, but really all American, you know, grew up in Hackensack, uh, ended up going to Catholic school from kindergarten, eighth grade, uh, then went to public high school, Hackensack high school. You know, so I grew up 12 miles out, uh, from New York city. I grew up watching that city skyline. And, uh, so that's where I'm originally from. Well, all right. Well, what, what, what brought your, your folks to America from Columbia? Well, you know what? I, I mean, listen, uh, the United States is the greatest country on earth for a reason. And my mom taught me that reason. She said, look, it's not that we don't love our country, but we're going to a place that's super, super special. A place that, you know, there are freedoms unlike any other place in the world and opportunities like um, uh, any other place in the world. And one of the things my mom taught me, and this is something that I really express with people, especially immigrants, that, you know, this country is so special because of it's a melting pot. And my mom and dad taught me, listen, you're going to bring your heritage with you, the Colombian heritage, and you're going to take the best of our heritage and, and apply it to the United States and make it a better place. My mom was very big on, we're going to fly the American flag. You're going to learn English. And let me tell you, my mom still has a, a, a really thick accent, still struggles with her, her English uh, all the years she's been here, but she went to college. And every Tuesday to today, she spends an hour with my wife on the phone going over in English. And, you know, God bless her. She's 76 and she just, loves this country she instilled that love for me uh at a young age and you know she just said this just remember this is the greatest country on earth because of the opportunities and freedom so that's really why they came here they came here for those opportunities my dad was a welder uh he came a year ahead of us in uh in 68 and mm-hmm. spent the year uh actually no 69 spent the year working before he brought us over and my mom was a beautician and um uh, and a seamstress. So they were blue collar people who came here. And let me tell you, I, I love them to death because they worked really hard uh, and, and taught me that, you know, you're as good as the next person while you work hard and you apply yourself. And they've always been great examples for me. And that's something that I share with uh, today's youth when I get the opportunity to speak to places is that uh, if you're lucky to be born in this country, uh, understand that you have such a special gift and uh, that's what brought them over is really to make a better life for them and for our family, which they have. Well, do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister, Karen. She was born here at Hackensack Hospital in Hackensack. Mm-hmm. So she's full blown, uh, red, white, and blue. Although, uh, you know, like I always tell people when I believe I, re- I believe red, white, and blue, but, uh, that's just it, me and my sister. So we're kind of a small family. 
Uh, we have a lot more families still in Colombia on both sides of the fa- uh, family, but, uh, you know, uh, it was just my, my parents and me and my sister. Do y'all ever go to visit in Colombia at all? It's been a while. The last time I went was in 1998 when my grandmother passed. Oh, sorry um, to hear just that. haven't had the opportunity. And then, of course, you know, uh, the last several years we were thinking about it, but then COVID hit, so that put a kibosh on it. So in the future, I do uh, intend to go back. It's a beautiful country. I'm, again, I'm from Barranquilla, Colombia. So for those that don't know where that is, if you know who Shakira is or Sofia Vergara, that's where I'm from. It's the coast, so it's beautiful beaches out there. And, uh, you know, we're a pretty country uh, to visit, but uh, hopefully in the next couple of years we'll be able to go out there and visit with some of the cousins and aunts and uncles. I can't believe we got Shakira brought up on the podcast. <laughs> I taught my, I, uh, I took my niece to see her in Corpus Christi and it was, she put on a really good show. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, well how old are you, Will? Well, I am, uh, 54, be 55 this year. And, uh, you know, after what I went through, I'm, I'm just blessed to have every single day I have, to be honest with you. Yes, so sir. I tell people growing old, I know it can be tough sometimes, but it sure as hell beats the alternative. Well, and people tell me that all the time, you know, growing old, you know, it beats the alternative, but you know, we don't really know that yet, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> it might not. I mean, what I say is I'm, I'm happy to grow old because not everybody gets the privilege. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Well, very good. Well, I know that you were working for the Port Authority Police Department. How, how did that go? Did you always want to be a cop? Uh, what was, how did, how did you get doing that with, you know, up in New York City? Well, you know, at a young age, one of the things that was instrumental for me was television. And in the 70s, I would watch, you know, all the TV shows from back then. And I know I'm probably uh, dating myself here because I'm sure some of the younger people that are listening to your podcast would be like, what show is that? We're both 54, bro. I watched Adam 12, Emergency, The Blue Knight, and as well as a lot of black and white movies of, uh, you know, the Korean War, Vietnam War, uh, World War II. And that had a really large impact on me as a, as, a, as a young man. I always wanted to serve. I just wanted to serve my country. And eventually, one of the days when I grew up, I wanted to be a police officer. So from a young age, I already knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, becoming a Port Authority police officer was not something that was on my radar. But it's something that ended up being something good um, for my family uh, financially with benefits. But it was a dangerous job. And we'll get into that. But. Uh, it took me six long years to become a police officer up in New York and New Jersey, especially in New Jersey. Uh, when I was trying to be a police officer, it's a very sought after position. Uh, we get paid very well up there. Uh, we have great benefits. Uh, and the Port Authority was something that was, uh, was new to me. You know, the Port Authority police, so everybody knows they're a bi-state agency. So we're police officers in both states. And what we do is we protect and serve all the major transportation facilities in New York, New Jersey. So we have, the World Trade Center, the bus terminal Midtown Manhattan, which is where I work, uh, the three major airports, uh, Kennedy, LaGuardia, Newark, Tittleboro Airport, uh, as well as the PATH train, um, the George Washington Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, and the Verrazano Bridge, uh, as well as Port Newark. So we have all the major transportation facilities. Um, and one of the things we were taught in the academy was you're going to do the same job as the NYPD, which we work with as well as our counterparts on the New Jersey side, which is all the different municipalities, uh, Fort Lee and all the local towns, as well as the state police. But what sets the Port Authority police apart from them is that uh, we're a target-rich environment. So what I mean by that is we were attacked in 1993. Uh, and if you think about it, if you're a terrorist, what do you want to do? You want to 
create as much uh, death and destruction in one place. And if you look at our facilities, all our facilities house a lot of people at one time, whether it's the airports, the bridges. I mean, you take a regular morning at the George Washington Bridge, you got thousands of people coming over at that bridge. You look at where I work at the bus terminal, you know, in the morning and the afternoon, what we call the rushes. Thousands of people are coming into midtown Manhattan in the afternoon, thousands of people, thousands of people are leaving. So that's what sets the Port Authority Police apart from the other departments we work with. You know, we're, we're the 26th largest in the country. Uh, we have various groups that, within us. You know, we have K9, we have ESU, which is our SWAT units. Uh, you know, we have detectives, uh, we have a joint terrorist task force. So we're a big department and we cover a lot of ground. So that's who the Port Authority Police Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't know that that was the, the size of it. You know, the, my wife's family is all from New York. And so I've, I've been up there before. And so I'm kind of familiar with the areas that you're talking about and you're right. It, it's loaded with people and it is target rich. I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, I've been, it's been described from some of the people that I know that have been all over the world that New York truly is the capital of the world. And so what a place to hit. Yeah, it is. It, I mean, I, I enjoy working where I work at the bus terminal, uh, just the amount of people that come from around the world is amazing. You know, I've talked to people from all parts of the world. You know, of course, they'll walk up and want to take a picture with you, ask directions. Uh, and a lot of people are just in awe. I mean, I've seen people, you know, one square city block there in New York City in the morning. We have hundreds of people on a, on a city block. And you get some of these people that come from around the world where they come from small towns. And you can see expression on their face. They're overwhelmed with the amount of people that are in one place at one time. And, uh, you know, it is the greatest show on earth, without a doubt. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I know that your, your story was told, um, in, in a movie, uh, world trade center. And I was, like I said, I was real excited to have you on. And so my wife and I went and we watched that last night, uh, rewatched it. Mm -hmm. And, it, uh, you know, that we'll get into, you know, that and everything else, but I, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, what was your day like? Cause I, I noticed that in the, in the show, it's like the people that you were there with, they knew you, you know what I mean? They knew you, uh, someone was, you know, sitting around, you know, underneath the statue and you went up and had a normal conversation, just like a normal friendship with these people. And so I guess you saw a lot of the same people there, uh, as well as a lot of new people. Yeah. So at the bus terminal, what was unique about the bus terminal was, you know, we're smack there right down a block of mid, uh, midtown, we're in midtown Manhattan, a block from the Times Square. We're right there at 42nd, 8th Avenue. So our buildings, are two humongous buildings that sit between 40th Street and 42nd, between 8th and 9th. Uh, the busiest, uh, the biggest bus terminal in America and the busiest in the world, believe it or not. And so I had nine months on the job. I had just graduated January 19th of 2001 with the 100th class. Okay. And the 70th class. And we had graduated at the World Trade Center on January 19th, 2001, like I said, at the Marriott, which is weird. And then I got assigned to the bus terminal uh, along with a lot of my classmates. And those nine months was, honestly, was, uh, you know, you were baptized by fire. Uh, people wouldn't think of what happens within those two buildings. We have gangs, we have crime, we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of uh, medical aid to people. Uh, but a normal day during those nine months, we got to know who the people that would linger in the area. And, you know, I'm talking about your homeless. Uh, you have EDPs, the most disturbed people. Uh, and, you know, if you're a good cop, you got to learn real quick on knowing who's who. That right. way you can control the environment. Our, our job there is to make sure people are safe, uh, make sure people have medical aid, information, uh, and just protect, uh, you know, the facility. Uh, so you got to know who it was. And, you know, you, you would talk to just like any cop, 
you know, the people that uh, might not be the the best people, you, you, you try to have a relationship with them to make your job easier as a police officer where, where I can talk to someone, you know, show them a little respect so they can give you respect back, you know, uh, and, and I did. And then you also had your common uh, people, pickpockets, thieves, you know, people looking to hustle people. Uh, so every day was an adventure. That's the one thing I loved. And uh, I've always said, uh, you know, growing up, I was a guy that wanted to work. So I was a working cop. Like I would make sure that I was paying attention, not afraid to, to interact with people. Uh, and like I said, it was really, really a great place, a great learning experience. Uh, and I got to do what I wanted to do as uh, since a little boy. That was become a cop and actually do it. And in those nine months leading up to the, uh, the attacks, I really got to learn a lot of things from a lot of good senior cops. We dealt with like the Bloods, the Crips, uh, the Latin Kings, uh, you know, so there was a lot of stuff in those, in those buildings, things that most people wouldn't think are, are going on, uh, are happening every single day. Right. Well, I, I guess the, uh, the, the elephant in the room, man, uh, tell me about September 11th. Tell me, tell me how that started. Tell me your story. I mean, like I said, we well, went, I, we look back at it, you know, last, last night, my wife and I went through the movie, very well done movie. Um, but I, I wanted to hear it from you and I sure, I mean, like I had told you before, you know, I, I watched this happen from deep in South Texas, you know, and I got friends all over the United States as well as the world who saw it from somewhere else. And, and you were right there. And, uh, that, that's why I think it's just so valuable to hear it from you. Um, uh, so but, if you don't mind. No, and, and I don't, and I appreciate you uh, saying that because one thing that is a common denominator for those that live through September 11th is that, uh, especially people who have served in our military law enforcement, uh, the one thing is uh, that every American that they felt like they wanted to do something, no matter where they were from the country, because uh, when they attacked New York City and, and, and the Pentagon and lost so, so many brave people in Point 93, you know, uh, they were attacking America and the world, and uh, I just... I love the sentiment, you know, people know, remember where they were and uh, the feeling was people wanted to do something. But let me tell you, September 11th, I woke up that beautiful Tuesday morning and uh, I'm a big outdoorsman, I'm a big bow hunter. Uh, the night before, I was planning on taking what we call a personal day uh, to go hunting, but I stayed. I just said, you know, I'm going to save it for November when the rut's on, it's early. Uh, so I went to work and I was living the American dream. I really, really was. I had the job that I, I wanted since a child. I was married to my beautiful wife, Allison. Uh, I had a four-year-old little girl named uh, Bianca, and my wife was seven months pregnant with our second baby on the way. And we had just bought our first home in Clifton, New Jersey, which is about 20 minutes from New York City, six weeks before the attack. And um, I really was living the American dream. And uh, I got up that morning. I was working day tours. I was studying day tours from seven to three. Uh, got up that morning, got ready. Uh, went into my daughter's room, kissed her like I did every morning. I went into our bedroom and I kissed uh, Allison goodbye and I kissed the tummy goodbye, you know, to the baby. And I literally skipped down the stairs every morning uh, to this old uh, truck that I had. I was a rookie, you know, so the money wasn't all there yet. Right. And uh, still had a duct tape on, on the side of your mirror that's busted. And I went off to work. Went to work, uh, went downstairs into our locker room. And uh, I tell everybody, you never outgrow high school. You know, walk into the locker room and everyone's just kind of uh, BSing, busting chops. Uh, and I always laugh about that. I tell kids today, I said, just trust me, you're never going to go out of high school. And uh, <laughs> we got ready, we suited up, put on our uniforms, went upstairs, and we go to what's called local, where we are given our assignments for the day. We're given any pertinent information. Uh, being the bus terminal, people don't realize that a lot of criminals take the buses because 
You don't have a TSA set up. You don't have any security, uh, really, procedures. Uh, so we always got a lot of criminals coming off the buses. We got a lot of runaways coming off the buses. So we're always brought up to speed on what might be coming in uh, or what we're looking for that might be trying to escape the city. So we were given our assignments. Uh, my assignment that morning was post 3-5, so I'd be on the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue. And uh, real busy, busy place in the morning. And uh, went out. And uh, like I said, mentioned earlier, what we have is called the rush in the morning. So you got people coming in from New Jersey, upstate New York, Connecticut. And it's thousands of people coming through for the for about two hours in the morning. Yeah. And uh, so my post where I was, I had my back to 8th Avenue. And I'm looking at the doors, uh, the building I was in front of. And there was an awning above my head. So I couldn't really look up in the sky. And uh, so just a normal day. I'm watching, making sure everybody's safe, make sure, you know, none of the bad elements are around and messing with anybody. And I just happened to look over to my right and the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue where the awning stopped. You could be just outside that awning. And there was a sergeant of mine, Sergeant Ross, and he was a two fellow officers, uh, McNerney and, and Sanchez. And I just happened to look over and I see Sergeant Ross kind of pointing in the air and he's following something with his with his finger. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I looked over the corner of 42nd, 8th Avenue. For those who have never been to New York City, an intersection in New York City is pretty, pretty big. And all of a sudden, I just saw like a shadow cover the whole intersection, which I thought was really weird. And I didn't think anything of it. So I went back to just doing my job. And I don't know, several minutes later, our radios crackled and uh, the police staff said 840, all units 840. And 840 means everybody come back to the police station. Now, mind you, this is the busiest time in the morning. And mm-hmm. we're all walking back. And that was really weird. So I hooked up with a fellow officer of mine that I had graduated with, Dominic Pizzullo. And Dominic was a great guy. He actually was a high school teacher who came over to the Port Authority for financial reasons. Uh, the Port Authority police officers uh, make good money, great benefits. But in those nine months leading up to the attacks, he really understood what it meant to be a police officer. Many really understood what it meant to be part of the thin blue line. And he was just a really, really great cop, uh, you know, good friend. And as we headed back, he's like, yo, Will, you know, something really bad must have happened for us to call us back to the police desk. I said, yeah. So we ended up walking back to the police desk. And as we're walking around uh, the police desk, I looked up and our police desk sits very high where the sergeants and lieutenants are. And uh, I saw a sergeant, uh, McLaughlin, somebody I admired. I had been to several gun calls with him, uh, very decisive. Uh, and one of the things... Uh, that I learned when I was in the military, because I was in the U.S. Navy from 1986 to 1990, was from a, uh, uh, a fellow uh, shipmate uh, who was a senior to me. He said, listen, always follow somebody into a bad situation that knows what they're doing, because your percentage of coming out alive are much higher. Yeah, And that always stuck in my head in life. And I remember looking up at the sergeant and Sergeant McLaughlin, who I really admired, I saw concern in his face. So I still didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. So that caught my attention, but we continued on and went back into what's called our reserve room, our break home. And as me and Dominic came around the corner, we had a big TV set on, and there's a news station called New York One, and the news was on, and they had a, the footage of the uh, World Trade Center. And Tower One had a big gaping hole in it with black smoke coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And now, like I said before, we were taught in the academy was coming back, which is, we're the same as the NYPD, as all the other police departments, but we're target rich environment. And that, that's when Sergeant Ross, who actually was the guy following the plane, because that's what he was looking up at, said, those are terrorists. 
Yeah. And, I, and I just couldn't believe it. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, learning algebra in, in, in high school and then having to apply it, that it really, you know, you had to use it, you know, it's yeah. like, oh man, and, you know, same thing. I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening. You know, these are real terrorists. Um, and even back in 2001, the technology was still enough that we knew an airliner was not going to just slam into a building. Right. So at that point, one of the things I did back then was uh, I always let my wife know if I was okay during an incident because there were several incidents uh, before the attacks on 9-11 at the bus terminal. I turned around, there was a pay phone uh, in the in the reserve room, and I turned around, I, gr- I grabbed it, I called her, and I actually got through because the, the phone lines were apparently busy. But I got through, and she's like, hey, what's going on? And I said, listen, don't know, but apparently a, a plane has flown into uh, – the World Trade Center. Now, at this point, only Tower One was there. Correct. Uh, we had some mutual friends up there, so she was asking about them, and I said, look, I, I don't have information. That's when our inspector, Inspector Fields, who was our commanding officer of the bus terminal, came in the back and said, listen up, we've commandeered a bus on Ninth Avenue. We're going to call your names. You're going to get on the bus. We're going to head down to the uh, World Trade Center to help our brothers and sisters. Again, uh, the World Trade Center is owned and operated by the Port Authority back then, and we have a command there. So our, our men and women were already starting evacuation. Uh, so I told Allison I had to go and I hung up and she later reminded me that's the first time I had never said I love you to her. Wow. Uh, and uh, because, you know, just the incident, I had to go. Right. So I remember myself, uh, Dominic Pizzullo, senior officer, Rock Mikey Robles. We didn't wait for our names to be called. We just started going out on Ninth Avenue and we jumped on this bus. We were at the, the front of the bus. So about 20 of us get on there. Um, Sergeant McLaughlin got into police suburban and led the way down there. He was in the in the in the suburban with Inspector Fields and another sergeant, Sergeant Peely. And usually from midtown Manhattan to downtown Manhattan where the World Trade Center sits, it could take you 20, 30 minutes depending on traffic. We were flying that morning. I mean, we left we midtown and we went through the village. And I remember still on the bus, you know, guys are still kind of BSing like, nah, there's no way that's a plane. There has to be a small plane. Uh, you know, the information was kind of vague. Everybody really didn't know what happened. Uh, we just knew we were going down to something really, really serious. And I remember it was about two city blocks back when we looked outside uh, the bus and to our right. And down the street, two city blocks back, we saw an FDNY ambulance working on a man who something hit his head. We saw a lot of blood in the street. And that's when the bus went silent. when everybody got serious. Like, well, this is bad. Yeah. We, we went up another block on West Broadway and we were blocked from Vesey Street, which is one of the sides of the World Trade Center. And we started uh, stepping off the bus. And I remember our lieutenant saying, all right, hold up. We're going to we're gonna muster right here. We're going to stage right here. And I remember just stepping off the bus and, you know, uh, served four years in the military uh, and been to 11 different countries, seen some tough things uh, during that time. But, man, what I saw that day, it's just, it was Armageddon. It was a war zone. Mm-hmm. As I look up, man, it's just black billowing smoke coming out of Tower 1. Now, when I'm looking at Tower 1, I see the big block gaping hole. Then I looked at the corner of 2, and I thought, okay, the plane hit the building, must have deflected. The second building, the corner of it was on fire. So in my mind, I'm like, all right, the one building's hit, the other one took some debris from the first initial hit. What we didn't know at that point was when we were en route to the trade center, the second thing. So the, the, the second building I'm looking at that I thought we just took some debris on the corner, I never saw the big uh gaping hole around the corner. Right. So we were all under the impression we got off the bus that only Tower 1 was in distress and 2 took a little piece of it. So at that point, we're just standing there, you know, waiting for orders. 
And that's when one of our senior guys who was in the 1993 bombing said, look, they're jumping. And, uh, and I, I looked up and I just saw people jumping from this big hole. They were jumping by themselves. They were jumping, holding hands. And let me tell you, as an American, as a human being, that was just probably the lowest point of my life because, you know, growing up, all I wanted to do was a cop. I wanted to serve and protect. I wanted to help people. Here we are with our uniforms on, our shields, our gun belts. And, man, you just felt like you were standing from the ocean. You felt like such a small little person. And you realize that things are bigger than us. You know, sometimes we think we're bigger than the world. We're not. And at that point, you know, that was a gut check. Because every time I saw somebody jump, I just felt like it's like when you take a pebble and throw it into the water and you get that ripple effect. Yes, sir. Every time somebody jumped out with somebody's father, mother, brother, sister, and the list goes on. And they just didn't stop jumping. They would keep jumping. And then they would disappear behind building six. And that was just, that was breaking all our hearts. Uh, well, well, you know, the thing about it is there's been pictures of that, you know, there, there's been video of that. And yeah. I know a lot of that, a lot of that have, of late has been scrubbed. It's pretty hard to find now, um, you know, but that actually happened. Like how many, how many people did you see jump? Well, <sighs> Man, I, I, I must have seen like about at least 10 people. I just couldn't look up anymore. I, yeah. just, I, I just couldn't. It was, it was really, really difficult to see that. And, and all I kept thinking is like, oh my God, this is the United States. States of America. This is our soil. Yep. And we're a town. You know, downtown Manhattan, it, it was really, really bad. This is something you see in other countries and war zones, not here in the United States. And uh, what snapped me out of it was Sergeant McLaughlin had parked the, the suburban up on the corner of Church and Vessie. And as he came down, uh, the block from West Broadway to Vessie Street was nothing but annihilation. I mean, it was, you know, literally pieces of concrete dust, pieces of the plain glass, unfortunately body parts. Uh, and he came running from there and he just said, Hey, I need volunteers. Uh, Sergeant McLaughlin had 19 years on the job. He was a former ESU officer, a SWAT officer. Uh, and again, someone I respected. And he said, I need volunteers and I need volunteers. And they'll have these sky air packs. Again, as Port Authority police officers, we have all these transportation facilities. So we're at the airport. So we're not only frustrating law enforcement, as well as medical, but as firefighters, because if a plane, God forbid, goes down in one of our airports, we're the first responders. So we have to know firefighting. So he said, I need guys that know how to uh, up to date on their Scott air packs. Um, so I don't remember who volunteered first. It was uh, Dominic Pizzullo, another fellow officer, Antonio Rodriguez, who had four years in the NYPD, had come over, graduated with us. He said, he's going. And I said, you know, I'll go. And at that point, Sergeant McGuff said, all right, let's go. We became a team of four of us. And uh, we just started running. We started running toward Bessie Street, uh, toward the buildings. And, uh, you know, one of the things I tell people, uh, you know, macho is what you have to do when you have to do it. You know, a lot of people want to talk macho till you know, presented with a bad situation. And I believe in that when you make a, you give your word, you take an oath, you got to follow through with it. And, uh, you know, I took an oath to serve and protect, but I'll be honest, I was scared. Yeah. I'm running toward those buildings and I know I was scared. Because as I'm running, I look back and the rest of the cops are still staged. And I knew they were going to have a job to do, but it was just us four running. But I could see concern and, and fear in the other guys' faces, but we had a job. To do. You know, the people up there were defending us. And that's what I like to tell young men and women who are looking to get into law enforcement or firefighting or EMT or joining the military. I understand that when you take that oath, uh, there are people depending on you on the other end uh, should you ever be called for something. And those people that they were waiting on us to get up to them. And uh, we, we forged forward. 
Uh, we got to the side of building. Sergeant McLaughlin said, Jimeno, take our, our billy clubs, our PR-24s at the time we carried, our hats, our memorable books, run up to the Suburban, throw our gear in there, meet us inside uh, in the E-room, uh, which are emergency rooms. They're set up throughout the World Trade Center for first responders to get helmets, bunker coats, Scott air packs, you know, whatever you need, that's a bit of an emergency. Right. And uh, so I ran up to the police suburban, and that's when I realized, hey, dummy, there's stuff falling from the sky because the police suburban had taken a large piece of concrete that hit the front of the suburban and just, you know, blew it up. And I was like, oh, my God. So as I looked down Church Street, again, I didn't realize the second tower was in. All I could see was thousands of people running, like cattle. Mm-hmm. That was just being curving out. And that caught my attention. It's still, you know, and, and everything's happening, but it's weird how your mind works. Like it's trying to process all this. It just doesn't seem real. Right. And at that point, that's right. Let me get back to the team. So for those who've never been to World Trade Center, World Trade Center was two humongous buildings connected by a mall level, which we call the concourse, uh, that would take you to the elevator banks for each of the buildings. And so you kind of went underneath one level of the towers, the way the World Trade Center sat. So uh, I entered the concourse, met up with the team. Um, we threw on our gear. Uh, there was only one bunker coat left uh, that uh, fit Antonio because he was kind of a tall, big guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, me and Dominic oh, have bigger shoulders, so the bunker coats were small that were left. So we just threw these Scott air packs and uh, put on these helmets, and we literally looked like firefighters with guns on our side. So one of the things we did was double-check each other's gear. And uh, I remember we're making a promise to each other. We said, no matter what happens, we do not separate. We all agreed. And uh, Antonio Rodriguez, being 40 years in the NYPD, he was older. He was 35. And he, he just made the cutoff uh, getting onto our job. And I remember I started putting on my leather gloves. I call them perp gloves. I mean, just call them perp gloves, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Antonio just looked out for everybody. He's like, yo, don't put those on. That's leather. We get near the fire that melts in your hands. And I'm like, man, good thinking, you know. Right. Uh, you know, everybody looking out for each other. So at that point, we went one lower, we went down one level from the concourse down to the police desk. Mm-hmm. We walked into the police desk and we walked in there and it was weird because our detectives had actually brought in a piece of the plane as evidence. And again, your mind's just like, wait a second, I know a plane flew in this building, but now to see a piece of plane here, it just wasn't registering. Like, this can't be happening in the United States, but it was. At that point, Sergeant Mavaka put on his gear and said, listen, guys, grab a mail cart. Start getting more equipment, throw more Scott Air Packs, axes, whatever you can get your hands on, because we're going up. Did that. I start pushing this cart. We get on the elevator, come up, and we come out into the main concourse where we came in from. And we started walking around. And one of the things I want people to understand, when people ask me all the time, well, what is it that you saw the most of on September 11th? And I tell people, the one thing I saw the most of was love. Mm-hmm. And why do, why do I say that? Because as we were coming, working our way around the path escalators, heading toward the center where there was a crossroad where we could either go to Tower 1 or go to Tower 2, there was a steady flow of civilians coming out of Tower 1. Now, mind you, very bad situation. Uh, there are people who are passed. There are people yelling. There are people hurt. And there's steady flow of civilians where in a single fire line of helping each other. And I thought to myself, man, if these people can be these brave, us in uniform, we need to be three notches above them. And I remember seeing a black gentleman with a white gentleman carrying this blonde woman with, with a severe cut on them. They were carrying mm-hmm. And I just said, man, what I see the most is love. People yeah. really caring about it. Total strangers, you know? And uh, so we hit the crossroads, and we could have went toward Tower 1 or Tower 2. 
At that point, Sergeant McCoff says, we're going to Tower 2 because there's another E-room over there. We need more equipment. So we started heading to Tower 2. We get to Tower 2. And again, for those that have never been to the Trade Center, out of the concourse, there's these big, huge glass revolving doors and glass where you could look into the lobby to the elevator banks to the Tower 2. So as I looked into this big lobby, uh, Sergeant McGough said, Jimeno, you stay here with the cart. The rest of you guys come downstairs. We're going to get more equipment. Now, at this point, we had, on the route there, we had met with another police officer, Christopher Amorosa. Uh, Chris worked with us at the bus terminal. Uh, I always say, you know, we have a saying in law enforcement, I'll go through a door with you. Mm-hmm. That means no matter what's on that other side of the door, I trust you in my life. I'm going through that door. That's the kind of individual Christopher Amorosa was. Uh, he had been assigned to the trade center, I think maybe a month before the attack. And, mm-hmm. You know, we lost him from the bus terminal and he was just a great cop and he had saved four people before coming back in and hooking up with us. Uh, there's a famous picture of Christopher Amoroso, a daily news photographer. Some of the people who listen to this podcast have probably seen it. Uh, you'll see him wearing Nike gloves and carrying a woman with another man, saying a woman. Um, but he had come in and hooked up with us and asked the sergeant to join us. Sergeant Glock said yes. And at that point, we realized that he had been injured over his life, left eye. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yo, Chris, you're right. He's like, man, don't worry about that. I'm good. He goes, we got to get more people out of here. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of cop was serving that day. Just someone who was injured but didn't care about his health. He just wanted to make sure more people got um, home. So those those four guys went downstairs, and I stood there looking into the lobby, too. And I could see people who had already passed. I see people injured. I could see our cops on the on the other side uh, toward Liberty Street actually shooting out the windows. They were firing their weapons to break glass so more people can get out. Yeah. And uh, a certain fear came over me. And that fear came from the sound house and what I saw through the glass. Uh, you would see concrete coming down and it would make a certain noise. But then I could see, and as they came down, there were bodies, there were human bodies coming down. Yeah. And it had a distinct sound compared to the concrete. And it was terrible because, again, every time I heard that sound, I knew we were losing another human being. And I'm standing there just like, you know, I'm 33 years old, I was in the military, but still, this was something that overwhelming. And that's when a, a, another officer, Port Authority officer, came up to me. His name was Bruce Reynolds. Uh, Bruce was like a 16, 17-year veteran. Uh, I had known about him through local papers because he worked uh, in Bergen County, which is part of Hackensack, the county. And I would read about the Port Authority officer stopping people from jumping off the George Washington Bridge. So I kind of knew him from the paper. Uh, he walked over to me. He was a uh, short African-American bald, and he was sweating profusely. He had a Scott Airpack on him. And he said, hey, you know, Reynolds, GWD, George Washington Bridge. I said, hey, Reynolds, Bustrom, or BT. And, you know, he says to me, you know what, kids, it'll be a long day, but we'll get a lot of people home. And, you know, at that point, I don't care how tough I think I was. I needed that boost from a senior officer to say, hey, this this is bad, but we're going to get a lot of people home. And that's the kind of people that I was associated with, with very proud of. We talked for a little bit, and uh, that's when the sergeant came up and Bruce walked away. Uh, that'd be the last time I saw Bruce. He, he perished uh, that day when the building came down. But uh, at that point, we loaded up more equipment, and Sergeant Goss said, all right, let's go. We're heading to Town 1. So at that point, I started pushing the cart again because I had been pushing the cart from the police desk all the way there. And that's when Antonio Rodriguez said, hey, uh, Jimeno, let me push the cart. You've been pushing from the police desk here, and if you're tired when we get to where we're going to go, you're not going to be any use. So in my mind, I thought, hey, man, great teamwork, right? So we right. switched. So at that point, we're going to head down this hallway. This hallway would have, it's about probably, I don't know, 
50 yards uh, down and make a left, and then, you know, we're heading to Tower 1. Uh, so we start going down this hallway. Halfway down this hallway, uh, Sergeant McLaughlin stops to talk to a, a group of firefighters in the, uh, in a EMT and says, hey, guys, be careful. I just came up from the B-1 level. The elevator shafts look like they're buckling. So at that point, the radio went off, and it's uh, our inspector asked him where our position is. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, we're, you know, we're, we're between buildings. We're heading to Tower 1. Is there anything wrong with 2? Because we don't know. Uh, and that's when um, we hear the humongous boom. I mean, just above us. And I look up, and it was like out of a TV movie. I mean, excuse me, out of a movie where everything's shaking like an earthquake. Mm-hmm. And all I could do was hold on to my helmet. And uh, as I'm standing there, the thought is like, I don't know what's going on. And this is where that saying I shared with everyone earlier, follow somebody that knows what they're doing because your chances of coming out are much greater. At that moment, I didn't see what was coming. And as building, the first building, Tower 2, is coming down, it's actually pushing a wall of debris towards Mm-hmm. into this concourse. And Sergeant McLaughlin saw it. So years later, he told me, he goes, when I saw that, what I thought, it was a car bomb. I thought, what do they do in the Middle East? They'll blow something up, let first responders or whoever come in for aid, kill them. Right. So he thought it was a car bomb, and we luckily, it was a miracle, we stopped next to a doorway to our right that led to a freight elevator. And Sergeant McLaughlin run, run to the elevator. Now I had been to the World Trade Center maybe once or twice on protest. I didn't know those buildings like he did. He had helped set up the security after the 1993 bomb. And so uh, Dominic ran first. I ran behind Dominic. Uh, and we hit this hallway. I could look behind me, and I saw Sergeant Blockman running behind me. Um, and, uh, you know, that change of position with Antonio Rodriguez is one of the reasons I'm alive today. Uh, because as the building's coming down and we hit that hallway, that's the first time I asked myself, Will, what did you get yourself into? Because yeah. I could see the lights flickering. And what I see is brown stuff. What I know today is actually the building coming down. Dominic started turning to the left, and I remember thinking to myself, we don't leave each other, so I started following Dominic. That's when just something picked me up and threw me on my back. And as the initial collapse happened, uh, I was in a 45-degree angle on my back, and, you know, our lifeline as police officers, the first one is going to be your radio. I mean, you go for your, your comms. And so I went for my comms. I'm, I'm yelling 813, which is our code for officers down, 813, officers down with Trade Center. You know, I'm trying to give up position and something just hits my hand and I lose my, my, my radio uh, that was on my uh, left lapel. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I just grabbed for my helmet for dear, hold on to dear life. And uh, it sounded like a million freight trains coming down on us. And uh, something hit my helmet, literally ripped it off and I had a chin strap on. And I just held on for dear life. And it's weird because it seemed like it was happening forever and then everything just went quiet and dark. And after a couple minutes, it was, we're sitting in the dark. Uh, there was a hole above me on my right side, about 20, 30 feet up. And slowly light started coming into this little, little cavern. Mm-hmm. And when I look, I literally have what I know today is an actual wall had now pinned me on my whole entire left side. So all I had was a little bit of use on my left arm. I had use of my right arm and my uh, left body was, was under concrete. My right leg was up like in a 90 degree angle, but I was stuck. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only thing I had exposed was my initial handcuffs on my left side, excuse me, on my right side and my, my, my side arm. And uh, I'm trying to like, you know, you're in shock. You know, I'm just like trying to figure out what just happened. And that's when Sergeant McLaughlin, who is now beyond my feet, about 
15 feet, but I can't see him because it's all concrete. There's nothing but concrete around me. And Dominic Pizzullo is actually buried to my left in a push-up position down by my waist. And Sergeant McLaughlin says, sound off. In the initial collapse, Sergeant McLaughlin is stuck in a fetal position. He's not injured. He's just stuck. Yeah, he can't move. And his helmet's caught, so he can't even move. He's like, just imagine your head stuck and you can't move. So that's what he's on. But he right away goes to his training, goes, sound off. So I said, Jimeno and Dominic Zulo. And we didn't hear the rest of the guys. Uh, so for the next two minutes, I kept yelling the guy's name, uh, you know, Christopher Amoroso. I said, Amoroso, Chris, and uh, A-Rod, which was Antonio Rodriguez's nickname. And I kept yelling the name for two minutes. And that's what Dominic said, really, they're, they're in a better place. And that's when we realized, you know, we just lost two fellow officers to America, two fathers, husbands. That, that was tough. Yep. And uh, that's when the pain started setting in on my left side. And it just felt like a thousand shed of Suburbans being put on my left side. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, whatever this condition, I said, man, I'm stuck, but I'm in a lot of pain. And Dominic says, I, I, I'm stuck, but I'm not hurt. So the wall hit me, and Dominic was in compacted in, in, in the dust, if you will, of the concrete. Mm-hmm. So it took him a little bit, but there wasn't much room above my head. I think there was maybe 18 inches above me, and to my right, it was only like a couple feet, and it was all concrete. We were literally in a and a little boy. And mm-hmm. Dominic finally was able to get out of the Scott air pack and literally had to crawl over my face. And he couldn't even stand up. He was in this little hole next to my right. At that point, he said, hey, Sarge, I think I can get out of here and go for help. Sergeant McGrath said, no, you got to get Jimeno out. And then you and Jimeno get me out. If you leave us, you'll never find us. This is probably a debris field above us. And, you know, that's a tough situation because we're all human beings. And, you know, our survival really comes uh, to mind when we're in a bad situation. And uh, we talked about, it. you know, Dominic said, well, I got a wife and kids at home. I said, bro, I got a wife and kids at home. Sarge has a wife and kids at home. And we talked about it a little bit. And uh, Dominic said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to try to get you out. And I think he did what I would have done. Uh, it was a tough call for him because maybe he could have went up there and tried to get help. We don't know what the situation was. Right. And again, we didn't know what had just happened. We right. didn't know the building came down on so at that point, Dominic started to try to get me out. And Dominic was a strong dude. Um, but I was buried, and there was a piece of rebar wrapped around toward my right side with a piece of concrete at the end. And for the next 10, 15 minutes, I guess, uh, Dominic was trying to take this rebar and bend it off me, but it would literally come back and slap me at full force. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be honest with you, for the next 10, 15 minutes, I you know, we actually laughed a little bit down there, as crazy as it sounds, because I'm like, yo, bro, you're, you're kicking my fucking ass. <laughs> and, and he laughed. And, you know, but it, then it got serious because he sat back down and I could see his face. And I'm feeling it right now, that fear. He said, really, I can't get drowned. I'm like, shit, this is bad. Mm-hmm. And that's when we hear another humongous boom. Same like the first one. I'm thinking, this is it. We're dead. You know, and as it, the concrete starts coming down, uh, the only I could hear Sergeant McLaughlin not yelling because at this point he's actually being crushed to the point where his sidearm is actually being embedded into his body. That's how much pressure is coming down. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I could do was, uh, for those you guys know sign language, the I love you sign. Mm-hmm. This is something I always do to my wife and my children at the time and I still do today. And all I could do was think, I'm dead. It's over. I cross my arms over my chest with the I love you because I figured if they found me, they would tell my wife, Allison, like, this is the way we found them. 
because she would know I was thinking about her. And that was the only time I thought about my family at that point was because at first it was about, you know, getting civilians home, then our team. And then when there's nothing left, I said, you know, think about my family. And as I did that, I looked over and something big came in and hit Dominic really, really bad, sat him down like a rag doll. And again, it seemed like it lasted forever and then just everything stopped. I was in more pain. Sergeant McLaughlin was yelling at this point really bad. And when I look over to my right, you know, Dominic was uh, was bleeding profusely from his mouth. Mm -hmm. And I realized that he took some bad internal injury. And I said, Dom, hold on. He was really, I'm dying. And he said, "Uh, don't forget that I died trying to save you guys. And I said, Dom, I would never let anybody forget that. And believe it or not, he he asked Sergeant McLaughlin, uh, he kind of cracked the joke and said, Sarge, you know, as he spit up blood, can I get a 3-8, which means a break. Right. And Sergeant McLaughlin actually stopped and yelled and said, yeah, you can have a 3-8. And he said, Willie, I love you. I said, I love you, bro. And at that moment, he took out his sidearm and he pointed it up into that hole that was above us and he fired around mm-hmm. in a last-ditch effort like to let somebody know, hey, we're down. Right. And he slumped over and he passed. And at this point, again, we didn't know the buildings came down. So now we're between both towers. We're literally in the epicenter between them both. So at this point, both towers have fallen uh, on us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't know. Uh, at that point, I'll be honest with you, I got hysterical. I started yelling, Sarge, Dom's gone, Dom's gone. And Sergeant McLaughlin through his pain just was the ultimate leader. He's like, you got to stay focused. You got to stay focused. He kept me grounded. And as time progressed, I said, Sarge, you know, what do we do? And he goes, Will, uh, well, at the time, we didn't even go by first name. I only knew him as Sergeant McLaughlin, and he called me Jimeno. And he said, Jimeno, there is no training set for this. This is literally we're going to have to survive so they can find us if they do. He goes, they're not going to come in and look for any survivors so they can secure the scene, and we don't know what it's like. So at this point, again, Sergeant McLaughlin, they must keep laying them, uh, car bombs on us. And uh, at that point, it started uh, a lot of eight hours of, of struggle. During those eight hours, uh, fireballs came in, were starting to burn me. I thought it was going to burn alive. Uh, didn't. Uh, then later, Dominic's weapon somehow uh, – heated up enough because these fireballs had started firing. I took 15 rounds right above my head. And like I said, I only had 18 inches above me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that gun started firing, I see the sparks and I hear the bang. And, you know, you're at this point, you know, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. Our bodies are swelling up from compartment syndrome. Uh, I didn't realize what the pow, pow, pow was when I wrote. I see Dominic's weapon, like literally two feet from me firing. Um, I put my hand over my, my face, hoping that, you know, if a round hit, my hand would stop, but I knew better than that. Yeah. And somehow I was still alive after the, the weapon discharge. And um, I'll I tell you, the, the pain and suffering was immense. Uh, you know, and what I tell people is the night progressed, there was a point that I wanted to give up. You know, me and my sergeant stayed awake. He said, it's imperative we stay awake because if we sleep, we're going to die. The pain was immense. Uh, but at one point, and I think this is the most important part, and I hate calling it my story, it's just a human story, is that I wanted to die later in that evening because I had just so much pain. Uh, you know, I, you know, we had been crushed. I had been burnt. I have been shot at. I lost three teammates at that point, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to die. And, uh, you know, I don't preach religion. I'm Catholic. Um, and uh, so I made my peace with God. So God, thank you for 33 great years. Thank you for my family bringing me this great country. And I said, you know, if I'm going to die today, thank you for allowing me to be a cop and trying to do the right thing. That's all. And I said, thank you for, you know, six years with my beautiful wife, Allison, four years with my little girl, Bianca. And I said, uh, but I'm going to ask you for two things. I said, uh, before I die, 
I said, somehow, someway, let me be there for the birth of my little girl, you know, because she was uh, due to be born uh, December. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just want to be there because I know Alex is going to be hurt that I'm not there. And the second is, <laughs> as silly as it sounds, the God, when I get to heaven, because I felt like these cowards, these terrorists, what they did were attacked innocent human beings that were doing nothing but trying to make livelihoods for their family. I said, God, just let me have a glass of water when I get there. I was so thirsty from the concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were taking concrete. And I closed my eyes and I tell people that I just wanted to die. And now you call it whatever you want. I call it, you know, to me, I saw a vision. It could be a dream. It could be hallucination. But I see a person walking toward me. He had no face, glowing white robe over his left shoulder in the distance was a pond with tranquil trees. Over his right shoulder was a tall endless sea gra- of grass. And it was just peaceful. All my pain went away. And I see this person walking toward me. And I know who it is. To me, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tell people you can laugh at this because I, he's walking toward me. I don't feel any pain. And I look at his hand. What's got in his hand? It's got a bottle of water. I don't know if it was Poland Springs or Avion. I have no idea. But I snapped out of that vision, dream, whatever you want to call it, with the fire in my heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, I woke up. Uh, you know, I came out of it and I said, Sarge. We're going to make it out of this fucking hellhole, or we're going to die trying. Because at that point, I realized if I had given up, I would have given up on my family because I didn't fight hard enough to get home to them. I would have given up my sergeant because he was buried further back that nobody could hear him. And I got a big mouth. So, you know, I kept yelling all night long. If I would have given up, I would have given up on the United States of America. But most of all, this is what I share with people today is I would have given up on myself, you know. And I said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die on my terms. And there was a peace about that that overcame me. And we started fighting for the next several hours. So around 8 o'clock that night, uh, two Marine Reservists and a civilian broke through the lines because they had secured the area where nobody could go into the epicenter. And these guys broke through. Uh, they heard me yelling. Uh, they found us. Uh, that was a struggle in itself because there was a small hole, which I didn't know was on my left side, and they were shining a flashlight. When they found me, uh, they said, we're U.S. Marines. And I said, well, listen, man, I'm made no don't leave me, man. We're, we're hurt. We got men down. They said, we're not going to leave you, man. We're Marines. It's a great to hear that. And at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, my God, the Marine Corps is here. We're at war. We're, we're at war. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took them about five minutes to actually locate me. They're, they're shining a light down on my left hand, which I'm waving. We had become piece of, part of the building. They couldn't see us. Yeah. Now, all night, I was so thirsty. I didn't have any spit. But I, I mustered enough spit that I put it on the... Uh, my left palm where they finally saw me. And that's when they went and got uh, emergency, uh, the uh, NYPD ESU unit, mm-hmm. the emergency unit, which is their SWAT team. And literally the whole cavalry came. Uh, Scott Strauss, Patty McGee, two NYPD ESU officers, and a civilian who came off the street was a former paramedic, uh, made their way down into a very, very uh, nightmarish hole and put their lives in line. For three hours, they worked on me to get me out. At one point, they couldn't get me out. And uh, I kept asking them, can you get my sergeant out first? Because I figured I was younger. And they're like, we can't even get this further back. We got to get you out first. And they were taking such a long time that I just said, you know, they couldn't get my left leg out. I said, just just cut it, man. I said, you know, I can live without a leg. I could, I could see this hole about 20 feet up, 30 feet up, you know. And the faster you can get me out, the faster you get to my sergeant. And they're like, no. And during those three hours, they were ordered to leave us because it was an encroaching fire. And these men said, no, we're not leaving these guys. We'll die with them. You know, I try not to cry because that's the bravery of America. They, they were willing to die with us. 
and all these men have families. Uh, but they were able to, to get me out after three hours of, of, and somehow me and my sergeant became accustomed to breathing the smoke and everything. These guys were choking. I mean, mm-hmm. they would, they would sign there and they finally were able to get me out. They started bringing me up. I said, Sarge, hold on. They're going to get to you next. And uh, when they popped me out of the hole, I remember that's the first time I cried. That I didn't cry when we got injured. I didn't cry when the guys died. I cried when they popped me out and I could see the moon. I could see the sky. I saw our smoke, but I didn't see the building. And I said, where is everything? And a firefighter said, it's all gone. Kid. And that's when I started crying because I'm like, we just lost so many people. Because uh, we didn't know until a year later that me and my sergeant were the only two survived from underneath. Uh, you know, it was about 20 of us that survived. That's the both the towers fell. You know, 13 in the stairwell. Uh, Port Authority officer Dave Lim, one of our canine guys. Uh, I think uh, the rest were firefighters and another Port Authority civilian. Uh, Mrs. Guzman, who's the last person pulled out, they found her at 12 o'clock the next day, topside. Uh, and a couple other people that made it out, thankfully. Uh, and, uh, but we're the only two to survive from under. So I knew what was still down in the concourse level. I saw how many people were there. And I just felt like we failed. You know, and they they passed me down the stoke basket, hundreds of people on the line with their boots melting, people getting injured. They put me in an ambulance, sent me to Bellevue Hospital. And the second time I cried was when I got to Bellevue Hospital, I think around, I think like quarter to 12 that night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a cop or a first responder, you hope that, hey, maybe a, a medical person will take a peek at you because you're trying to do the right thing on such a busy event. And they pulled me off the, the ambulance. And I said, where's everybody? And they're like, you're it. All these doctors and nurses standing around. And I remember I cried again because like, there's no freaking way that I'm, you know, at that moment, I'm the only one. Right. Uh, I flatlined twice that night on the operating table. They brought me back. Uh, my sergeant came out the next morning at 7 a.m. after t- almost 22 hours buried alive. Mm-hmm. I was total 13 hours. And, uh, you know, thankfully today, uh, uh, even though with my injuries, I wear a brace and my leg looks like a great white shark bit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm able to, to be here to talk to you and still enjoy my family. Uh, I've had to deal with a lot of the post-traumatic disorder. Uh, that's where, you know, I ended up writing the book, uh, Sunrise to the Darkness. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, um, if anything, my sergeant and I are testaments of what the human spirit can survive, what you as a human being. And I, I tell people this all the time because I do speaking engagements and people always ask me, like, They'll come up with this. I can't think of anything worse than 220 stories falling on the World Trade Center. And I tell everybody this. I want people to understand this. We all have our own World Trade Center. You lost a loved one. You found out you got cancer. You were in a bad car accident. You know, you, you were struggling through in COVID. Lost your job. Uh, a lot of mental struggles going on. You know, there's a difference between mental illness and mental struggles. We all have mental struggles. So just remember that your story is as important as my story. You know, at the moment something bad happens in your life, it's like having 220 stories hit you. It's what you do with yourself. And the three words I always use is faith, hope, and love. Always have faith in a religion. If you don't have faith in religion, have faith in yourself. You always have hope. Don't ever give up hope. And love. Have love for yourself and those around you. Those three things are going to get you through bad times. You know. And I always tell people, remember, you know, bad times don't last. You know, excuse me. Uh, you know, bad times don't last. Strong people do. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of strength in you. You know, if I can survive and I'm just a regular guy so can you so if you're listening to this podcast and you're in a dark place for whatever reason uh, understand you deserve happiness and if you fish hard enough you're going to find that happiness you know and and that's my main message to people after surviving the world trade center uh but at the same time it's a testament to the 
the American street. You know, on that day, these cowards thought they were going to bring us to our knees. And what they did was they brought us together. You know, we went in to try to save people on ourselves now in need. And other brave men and women came in and put their lives in line. So as an American, I cannot be more proud of the actions that were uh, took place on September 11th. And 20 years later, what I want to teach the next generation is not the bad things of September 11th. Yes, you need to know that there are entities out there that are evil entities that want to take our freedom away. They hate our country because we have so many good rights and we have the Constitution and we have freedom. Uh, but I want to teach them about the good. I want the future generations of young men and women to understand on September 11th, the darkest day in U.S. history, was the day that we shined because as Americans, we stepped up and we faced evil and uh, we defeated it that day. What an incredible, incredible story. Um, Thank you so much for taking that time to tell us this is it's uh, it, it looks like that. It looks like that the, the depiction in the movie followed really, really close with, with exactly what happened to you. I, I guess you had input on that. You know, we were very fortunate. First of all, we didn't want to do the movie in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were approached uh, a beautiful lady named Deborah Hill who did uh, all the uh, escape from L.A. and escape from New York and Halloween series approached us. She had heard about us and she said, this is a story that needs to be told because it's not only about us as police officers, but what our families are going through. And, right. you know, we are a small slice of that thing. We are the same as every other American and human being who were sitting at home with their loved ones at the trade center, hoping they get a phone call. Uh, our watchmen, one of some of the few lucky ones that did get a phone call that they found us. Uh, but. Uh, we, we met Deborah and she introduced us to Michael Shamberg, Stacey Scherr. They've done Pulp Fiction, Get Shorty. Um, and we liked them. And then they introduced us to Oliver Stone. And Oliver is, uh, you know, is known to be kind of a leftist, liberal, conspiracy theory guy, but he's a lot also of people a veteran. Remember, he's a veteran. And yeah. that's what it's going to get to. A lot of people don't know that Platoon is based on his life. And, uh, he's someone who fought for this country. Uh, whether you're for or against the Vietnam War, he's a soldier. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I met him, we, we hit it off right away. And I said, Oliver, uh, we're not doing this move for fame or money. We're doing it to show people, future generations, what happened that day and to honor those that we lost and to give hope that we can overcome things. And I remember telling him, I said, because I know you know what death is. You know what it's to serve. And he said, you know, we'll thank you for that reminder. As time progresses, people forget. And uh, he promised me. He gave us our word his word that he was going to do it right. And he did. And what made it better was uh, I was on set one day and I realized they were getting, bringing these extras like the FBNY guys, people that weren't there. Right. And I said, oh, so why don't we just bring in our real rescue workers? Because me and John can tell you our perspective. I can't be telling you their perspective. And it worked out even better. Some of the people you see in the film are, 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 are actual rescue workers from right. NYPD, Port Authority Police, NYPD, uh, FBNY. And that made it just the project more better. Uh, he literally kidnapped me for a while. My wife was not happy. I was on set a lot to answer questions. Uh, and if I couldn't answer, I'd call my sergeant. Uh, so basically, what you see in the film is what I told you. And if you go back to my first interviews back in 2001, it's the same thing. It's just a story of how we survived, how people came together, what our families went through. And that's an important part because, you know, all of us that serve our nation, whether it's in the military, law enforcement, uh, first responders, uh, you know, our families wear the uniform, you know, and our, right. our, our loved ones go through all the pain we're going through. And we're showing you in that film how strong our wives were. You know, my wife was seven months pregnant and right. she held it together. 
So, uh, you know, I just want people to understand that when bad times hit you, uh, hopefully our story is one that will give you that, that, that knowledge that, yeah, you know what? I can, I, we can get through this together as well. You know? So, uh, but the film was done in a respectful way. And it was what really for me was my senior officers. I didn't care what the public felt. If the senior guys that I respected and looked up to and had time on the job liked it. And I remember them coming out of the first screening and they said, you guys did good. And that's all that mattered to me. When your when your counterparts actually approve of it, that meant the world to me. And we've gotten such great reviews. Even today, I still get a lot of messages throughout the world on how they liked the film, how it was educational for them at this point, but also inspiration. So I always tell Oliver, Oliver, you might not have won an Oscar for this film, but when you get 13, 14 year old kids saying, thank you for making that film. It taught me a lot. That's something you take to the grave with you because you're not going to be able to take an Oscar. But knowing that you made an impact in, in especially young people's lives, that's priceless. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, that's the thing, you know, that this is, I guess, you know, Pearl Harbor, you know, the, uh, items like that, that have happened to the country, you know, throughout the years. And it's like uh, the space shuttle, everybody knows where they were, you know, whenever this happened and, you coming out and telling the story and then being able to see, you know, what, what they did with the movie, you know, matching so well. And, and you're right. It's a, it's a very small slice of what went on that day. But I mean, look, look how it fundamentally changed America. You know, it was just, it, we are living in a different place. You know, before that America was a different place. But just real quick though. Um, two questions. Uh, John McLaughlin. He's still, he's still around. He's still kicking. You guys are still in contact. Yeah. My, the boss, as I call him, he's a great man. Let me tell you something. He took all the injuries on me, uh, but never does he complain. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were doing the movie, there was times when we were together and I could see. So where he was, where he was injured was his hips. Uh, and, uh, you know, he still changes bandages today. Nine eleven is something that lives with us, you know, uh, then the day that that ends is the day that various, but he's a man that, when I'm having a bad day, I think about him because I've seen him actually start bleeding through his jeans and he's like, oh, I got to go change the bandages. And, uh, you know, he has a hard time walking, has doubled again, uh, the injuries I have. So both his legs, he wears braces on, mm-hmm. never complains. And, uh, you know, we're just proud to have been there and served our community, our both states of New York and our country. And, uh, we have a great relationship and I'm blessed to have him as, a, as my boss. I always call him my boss. Well, that's fantastic. Well, there's a, there's another one that's, and you had, you had mentioned it, that a Marine reservist had kind of gotten through the lines and they found you with a flashlight. Um, what about him? He, do you know what happened so, to him? There, yeah, there's two of them. Uh, one, I, I don't really talk to Dave Carnes and uh, blessed that he was there that day. The other one's Sergeant Jason Thomas. Uh, great guy. Great guy. Still have communication with him. We stay in touch. Uh, just two great Americans. Uh, there was a civilian with them that I spoke to once and he didn't want any credit. He just said, Hey man, I just trying to help out and just went on his way. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the EMT, uh, uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, but just blessed to have these people. And that's one of the things that we're blessed with that, uh, the people that came in to, to help us were, were stand up, uh, Americans and, uh, we're blessed to still have them in our lives. Scott Strauss and Patty McGee are very close to me, the two ESU officers that led my operation. Uh, so we, we're in contact and that's something, you know, that I hope that not only the events of September 11th, but I've always said that what impacted me as a child, like I said before, was the TV shows of, of wars and things like that. And, you know, I think it's important that history is taught the way it is. When you said earlier that they're kind of erasing things, we can't erase history because it's bound to repeat itself. You know, Pearl Harbor is something that our children need to understand. 
all the American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might not be the perfect country, but we're damn good. We're probably the best in the world. And sure, we have mistakes and we fall short, but you know, no nation is perfect. But again, uh, we're the cream of the crop. And uh, I think it's important that young generations understand the sacrifices that men and women have given for our freedoms. And it's something important. Yeah, I tell you, I, I know that you have, through the military, you've had the chance to, to visit other countries, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to go overseas, too, not not in that capacity. But I tell you, you're absolutely right. This is the best place. This is absolutely the best place. Well, what are you up to nowadays? What are you, what are you doing with your life now? Well, you know, this past year, the 20th anniversary, I, I had been planning to write a book for a long time, ever since probably 2010, when I was doing speaking engagements. I was watching the impact that uh, by me sharing my experience and feeling as the war raged in 2006, 2007 in, uh, in Afghanistan and in and, uh, and Iraq, uh, I was seeing a lot of veterans come back and I would always say, hey, you know, who served in theater? And what I was trying to say is, you know, who saw combat without, you know, embarrassing anybody? And I just wanted people to understand that uh, I had to do, and I still live with it, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I went through a really bad battle with it. Uh, and uh, what changed me was uh, the day that uh, I almost threw a, a shoe at my wife because the anger was so much. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know I was suffering from it. And uh, I remember catching myself from actually throwing a shoe at my wife, who I've never lifted a hand to a woman in my life. And I caught myself like, well, this isn't that you. And I took a drive up to the country and sat and I thought about it. And I said, I realized, you know what? I need to go talk to someone. And I realized because... You know, we know that if you are raised by someone who's abusive, a drinker, a drug addict, uh, a lot of times those children become those people that are raising them. Mm-hmm. And I did not want my children to be affected because I felt that if I wasn't a good husband, a good father, these terrorists through me reach another generation of Americans. So I started going and talking to people and, and, and learning to live with those stress disorder. And I would share that with people. And I started getting a lot of military vets coming up to me after saying, you know, thank you so much. But it was 2010 when uh, I went and spoke to a university. And uh, the following year, a, a young Marine had come back. And uh, he had seen some bad stuff in collusion. And the following year, he came back and he stood up at the end of the class after I was done speaking. and said, I just want people to pay attention to what Will said. It helped me. You know, uh, I thought about ending my life. And uh, his words about not giving up helped me go to the hospital and get better. Uh, he actually forwarded our book. So my book is called Sunrise Through Darkness, uh, a survivor's account to learn to live beyond 9-11. And it's a book that tells you basically what happened in the hole, but more importantly, my recovery, what I went through, my struggles. And this is the thing that I started realizing over the years of speaking, people relate to, whether it be they saw combat, whether they've been in the shooting, whether they've been in any other type of tragedy, um, and it, the book has reached further than I thought. I've had doctors reach out to me that the books have helped women with postpartum mm-hmm. syndrome, which blew me away because it's a struggle. doesn't matter what your darkness is. It could be from drug abuse, alcohol, PTSD. A lot of people find themselves alone or they feel alone when they're dealing with their darknesses like I did. But you have to realize that you're not alone. There are people out there willing to help you. And that's what I want for people. I don't want people who have served our nation are serving our community uh, that are dealing with things uh, because you deserve happiness. So I wrote the book Sunrise Through the Darkness. And then the last couple of years leading up to schools were asking me, you should have a kid's book. And I'm like, a kid's book? What am I going to write a kid's book about? And uh, I got pushed to the point where I met somebody who was an illustrator 
And I wrote the book with uh, uh, my co-author, uh, Charles McCarty, uh, called Immigrant American Survivor, The Little Boy Who Grew Up to Be All Three. Um, and both books are on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. And uh, it's a great book because you literally see the front cover. It shows a little boy with a soccer shirt from Columbia, South America, mm-hmm. saluting the American flag, showing the World Trade Center. And what I do in that book is I kind of go through my life story where third, fourth, and fifth graders can understand it. And I show them how I came to this country, grew up trials and tribulations. There's always going to be bullying, how everything that, you know, just things that kids grow up to and let them know that, you know, whatever dreams they have, they can attain. I show that I served in the military, how hard it was for me to become a cop, but I reached that goal and how, what happened on the trade center. So my hope with the children's book is to inspire young children in America to understand, to love this country, understand that they're important, they're our future and that they can overcome anything. But Sunrise to the Darkness is a book that um, I hope people will pick up, uh, especially if they're struggling with uh, any type of darkness, whatever that may be. And uh, what I did, I wrote it with my co-author, Michael Moats, who's a doctor of psychology out of Colorado Springs, and he works with a lot of military groups out there. So he sees the ugly of what our men and women uh, go through, through through their service. And what we did was I said, hey, Mike, can you write and I'll talk? And then you as a doctor to college could put some exercises or, or advice in there that someone who does not want to go talk to a therapist or a doctor might be able to help them so they can get one more day, one more week, one more year uh, to get better than doing the ugly thing that we know that the suicide rate is very high amongst uh, military people, first responders. Uh, and I just want to be able to help my brothers and sisters out there that are struggling for something by picking up this book and at least get them started on their road to recovery. You know, everybody's going to have a different blueprint to reaching their sunrise, but I promise you that if you apply yourself, you're going to find that. And when they read this book, I feel that they're going to identify with me like seriously, the thousands of people have been blessed to speak to and come up to me and they give me feedback as to how it has helped them. And I think it's just an important part of being an American and human being to share a story that, is going to somehow, some way, help somebody else. And that's the way I feel like I'm a police officer today, through my books, uh, my speaking engagements. And, uh, you know, for me, just spending time with my family, I've been blessed to see both my daughter, Bianca, and Olivia grow up. Uh, Olivia, my youngest, uh, like I said, seven months, uh, my wife was seven months pregnant, September 11th happened. Uh, she was born November 26th of 2001, on my birthday. Uh, she, she was a C-section, but that was the gift my wife gave me. Uh, and that motivated me when in therapy, they told me, listen, if you can work hard enough to get yourself in a wheelchair, we'll let you go we'll be there for the birth of your daughter. Wow. I worked my ass off and I was there to be uh, with my wife in a wheelchair to see the birth of my daughter. So uh, today I try to be a good dad. I try to motivate people in a positive way. Uh, and uh, very proud to say I'm an outdoorsman. I'm actually right now in Auburn, Alabama. Because uh, my oldest graduated from Auburn University and my uh, second Olivia is a sophomore year. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud that she works at the Veterans Resource Center here to help our returning veterans uh, acquire their education here while right. she's studying as a student. And, you know, I'm down here turkey on right now. So ah, good for I'm you. trying to spend as much time outdoors and uh, just do my part in trying to help people become better uh, people, especially those that are struggling with darkness. Well, it, it's on the other side of that too. Well, you know, we had, we had been telling people that, you know, on the podcast that we were going to be able to, to interview you. 
and I actually got an email in from a guy who had been to one of yours, uh, and the next day he went and started his career to be a firefighter. So it, it not just, not just uh, helping people who've done it already, but you've inspired people to, to go into that same field as well. Well, I just want to say thank you to, 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 to that young man uh, that, uh, that reached out to you to say that. That means the world to me. You know, as uh, military people, as first responders, we don't always get that feedback after you, you do something. You right. know, uh, it's nice. I always tell people, you don't join the military or, or become a cop for medals. You know, uh, if you're lucky, you get a pat on the back after doing a good job. Uh, I know many, many people listening to this understand they go out, they do their job, and if they're lucky, they'll get a thank you. But we don't do it for that. We do it because we want to serve our, our country. We want to serve our community. And when I get feedback like that and I could have made a positive impact in someone's life, it's, it's what you look Well, I, I tell you, you know, I had some other, other things. Come. I asked people for questions and nobody had any questions. But it was like, I'll tell you that down here in South Texas, where, where Rifles Only is around, we had several people uh, and from other places, too, said, I don't really have much to say, but if he ever needs a place to stay or <laughs> wants a free meal or a beer, whenever he's around us, let us know. So, man, it's uh, you. You have made a difference. Well, I, you have made a difference. I, and it's been incredible. Thank you. And I appreciate the whole country. I love Texas. Love coming down here and hunting. Uh, and, 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 you know, I just want people to understand that the American flag is not made out of cloth. I tell everybody the American flag is made out of the blood of our patriots. So please, please educate your children. On, on, on America, let them, especially the times where these turbulent times where I don't know why we seem to be anti-American in, in many ways. And uh, just remember that this country is attacked, has been attacked because of our freedoms. And, and just please, let's, let's do our part to make sure this is still kept the greatest country on earth by uh, teaching our children to love our country, serve our country. And uh, that's all I can ask as a survivor. You know, keep the American dream alive because uh, it's one that's been good to me and my family. And I want it to be good for many, many more generations. Well, man, Will, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and uh, and do this podcast. So the people who listen to this Rifles Only Actually podcast had a chance to hear your story. Uh, I, there's no way that I can express my gratitude for you doing that. But I know you came from Columbia and then went to New Jersey. And, you know, now you're down in Alabama. You must have spent some time in Texas because you said on that morning you were driving an old pickup truck that had duct tape on the rearview mirror. And that's, that's about as Texas as it gets, brother. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I appreciate you for having me here. And, and, and again, uh, the books are, uh, you know, uh, Sunrise to the Darkness and Immigrant American Survivor. You can get them on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. And please, if you're a person that, that reads either of them and like it, please leave us a good review because that gives the opportunity for other people to read from, from the people that read, especially those uh, struggling with any type of struggles and say, hey, yeah, this book helped me. And that way you can help a, a fellow American or fellow human being. I appreciate that so much. Well, you, you continue to give and it's, it's much appreciated. All right. We're going to wrap this up. You can hang on after when I'll, I'll stop this recording. We'll have a little visit afterwards. Well, but thank you again for being here. I very much appreciate it guys. Go out and get those books. They're available on Amazon. I'll put them in the show notes for this episode. And thank you again for listening. 